Turn to First Peter chapter four. Verses 12 through 16. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the Spirit of of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or a thief, or an evildoer, or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Let's pray. May the Lord grant that uh, we may engage in contemplating the mysteries of this heavenly and uh, countercultural wisdom with an increasing devotion to His glory as well as to our edification this morning. In Christ's name, amen. Elizabeth Elliot is known for a number of things, among which is as an author. But one of the books that is probably not as well known is her novel. It goes by the name of No Graven Image. And she draws, I think, upon her own experiences and places them within the context of another person. Because it is about a single woman who is a missionary to the country and of Ecuador to a people that she has a hard time reaching. She's rejoicing at one point, the the figure in this story, because she discovers a man with whom she can communicate who knows the, the unknown dialect of the people she's trying to reach with the good news of Jesus Christ. And so she thinks, finally now, the gospel will be able to prevail within this tribe of people. She's happy. But then, he gets sick. And things begin to change quickly. Uh, she's, she's beckoned. She comes to his side. His family is there. She realizes she has medicine that might be able to help him. She, she gives him the antibiotic. And instead of it helping, actually, he has an allergic reaction to the antibiotic. And he gets worse, and he dies. And so this missionary is left kind of questioning God in a profound way, wondering what went wrong, why things went the way they went. The graven image of which Elizabeth Elliot speaks in this novel is not the graven image of the tribes she was trying to reach, it was the graven image within the heart of the missionary herself. That she had a false understanding of God, an understanding of God in which God had to do what she thought was right. What she thought was best. A God who had to answer to her as opposed to a God to whom she 
answers. That's a pretty common problem, which is why I think Elizabeth Elliot wrote this novel. It was one that I think her own heart struggled with, with all of the uh, circumstances surrounding her husband's death. But she saw it as far more profound than that. The book ends with this quote, God, if he was merely my accomplice, had betrayed me. If, on the other hand, he was God, he had freed me. And so that is the note that the book leaves the reader upon. I think a note that Peter would agree with wholeheartedly with what we see in this morning's text. Our big idea is that the Spirit makes us share in Christ's suffering and glory. And so we have to start with the the unexpected, the downside of all of this, and it's don't be surprised if you suffer. Now, Peter does something in the very beginning of this paragraph. He doesn't do anywhere else in this letter. He uses the word beloved. He's called his audience many things thus far, but this time, finally, he says, beloved. What he's saying, I believe, is so difficult for them to receive that he has to preface it with the reality that they are loved by God first and foremost, but they're also loved by Peter. He is saying these things to them precisely because he loves them. And when we love people, we have to say, unfortunately, hard words to them at times. And Peter has to say a hard word to these particular people. And he wants them to know that this comes from love. Those of us who've raised children, we know that we have to speak hard words to our children. And they're not always well received, and so we have to remind them at times, we say this because we love you. You may interpret this in a completely different way, but really our heart is because we love you, we are saying this difficult thing. There's a proverb, of course, the wounds of a friend are faithful. It recognizes that a friend loves and a friend will say the hard words that need to be said sometimes. And so Peter here is about to say hard words that he wants them to hear. And so he talks about the fact that he loves them. The hard word has to do with Peter coming back to this theme of persecution and suffering that he keeps touching on within the book. He keeps getting back to this particular subject. I have a friend, and for many years he kept going back to the same stories of his childhood because he had a very difficult childhood, and there were things yet to be resolved within within him with regards to his childhood. When there's unresolved business, we sometimes go back to things, and there's a sense in which there's unresolved business here. Peter hasn't said everything he needs to say to them about suffering. 
And so what we're going to find is is familiar in some sense because there's things that he's already said that touches upon them, but he's also adding some new perspective to what he has said. And so I don't feel like I could just, oh, well, we've done there, been that, move on. But there's something here that we need to hear that's very important. And the first thing that he says is, do not be surprised at the fiery trial. Do not be shocked, he says. I should have, in a sense, quoted this yesterday, or at least I felt like I should have quoted that yesterday in social media as many of my friends were shocked at what happened in Charlottesville. I'm not sure why they were shocked. Where have they been their entire lives? Racism is a problem. A serious problem. It's it's not new. It hasn't gone away because the human heart is still here. And so they're, they're forgetting, in a sense, the reality of sin and the reality of human depravity, and they're acting surprised that this could still be happening in an our age. It's like, have you not been watching the news lately? These people were not to be surprised. They were not to be shocked, taken aback, as if something unusual were happening, as he, or he says, as if something strange were happening. You have to know where you live, essentially. And Peter is addressing people who, though they believe, though they have faith, are living in a faithless place, as we've said before. They're living in a version of Babylon, and we too live in a faithless place. We live in a version of Babylon. And so it shouldn't surprise us. It shouldn't take us aback when we experience things that are incredibly difficult, when we experience suffering of various forms. But why would they be tempted to be surprised? Because apparently some of them may have been. So I think the first reason that Christians might be surprised at their own suffering is because, as Peter has said numerous times in this letter, Christ has borne our sins. And since Jesus has, in fact, borne our punishment, some people wonder, well, why then do we still suffer? As though the bearing of our sins has removed any earthly suffering from us. As if we suffer for our sins now. Second reason I thought of as to why Christians might think it's strange that they're experiencing a fiery trial is that since we're loved by God, God should treat us better than He seems to be treating us at this particular moment. That if I was His child, that all would go right. That I would get the promotion that I want, I would make the salary I want, I'd live in the kind of house that I want, I'd have the kind of kids or spouse that I want, that everything would be right within my world. This is sometimes called therapeutic moral deism. What it means is is that God leaves me alone except to bless me and to make sure I'm feeling good. And human beings suffer from that desire of wanting that. And that's exactly 
what Elizabeth, Elizabeth Elliot was writing about. The mistaken notion that if God really loved me, this man would have lived and I would have been able to bring the gospel to this tribe of, uh, of natives within Ecuador and all would be right in my world and I could go home and be a success and write my books about how God used me to change the world in Ecuador or change Ecuador. But that's not what God has highest on His priority scale. The granting you of every wish, He's not a genie within a bottle. There are some important things that are, that are taking place within our context that we have to reckon with as we, we live in this faithless place, and one of which is that Satan continues to wage war against the saints. It started in the Garden of Eden. There he is. He was more subtle or shrewd than the other animals. And he deceived Eve so that she would sin, so that Adam would then sin and plunge all of creation into the curse. He didn't stop there. We see it continuing in places like Daniel 7. When the Son of Man appears before the Father and He receives the kingdom, there's still conflict that is going on around as as the kingdoms of men are being subjugated to the Son of Man. We see this as well in Revelation 12 and 13. The dragon and the two beasts making war against the saints. It continues today. Jesus has come, but His first coming is like D-Day. The war is over, but the fighting has not ceased. Jesus has delivered the final blow, the fatal blow, but the enemy is not yet completely vanquished and continues to rage. And so Satan, though he might be a lion on a chain, is still a lion and still roars and still bites if you get too close. And so there is the reality of the ongoing war, of spiritual conflict that exists But Peter talks about this fiery trial. He talks about this test. Makes me think back, or make, should make me think back, of 1 Peter chapter 1 where he says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That idea of testing. Peter returns to that idea of testing that these trials that these, that the audience was experiencing or should expect to experience in the, in the near future had come to test them to reveal what was really in their hearts. When you squeeze a person, sin emerges. Just as surely as you squeeze the toothpaste and toothpaste comes out, the sins of a person's heart will be revealed when they are tested and tried so that they may repent of those sins. It's important for us to recognize that. John Newton 
mentions that when the uh, blacksmith wants to work with metal, he first has to put it into the fire so that it can get hot, so now he can shape it properly. And in the similar way, when God wants to make you holy, He puts you into the flames so that now you're pliable and able to be shaped the way He wants to shape you. Unfortunately, while the metal is not sensible, you are. (laughs) You have feelings, and it's difficult for you in a way. It's not difficult for the metal being shaped by the blacksmith. But we need to recall that the Father is going to use all necessary means to make His children like His Son. The things that come into our lives are brought into our lives by Him in order to make us more like Jesus. To remove the things that are not like Him and to begin to place into us things that are like Him. Went to the Presbytery meeting on Wednesday. Drove up with two other guys from from town who were going up. And I told them, I warned them, for some reason, God is determined to make me a patient man. And I don't know how that will manifest itself upon this ride from my house to Chandler. Fortunately, God did not deem it necessary for there to be accidents or anything else. Uh, the long delays of traffic and everything went, went swell. But God is committed to making me a particular person. And much of the frustration we experience is brought to do that. And so as I look at my life, he's very committed to making me a patient person. And I'm very committed, unfortunately, to being an impatient person. So God and I are occasionally at odds until I go once again to odds with my impatience. But you see what happens. It's what normal sort of experience for a Christian. But not only that, but that the Father will use all necessary means in order to keep our wandering hearts fixed upon Jesus. Because you and I, yes, we are prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. And when we begin to do that very thing, He usually brings some sort of trial to remind us that we need Him desperately. So those are two of the uses of trials in our lives. So don't be, don't be surprised to experience fiery trials if you live by faith and you live in a faithless sort of place. Secondly, rejoice. This is the hard part. <laughs> rejoice to share in Christ's suffering. See, rather than being surprised, what he actually does is remind them, just as he did in chapter 1, to rejoice or to be exceedingly glad, and this makes no sense to us in any way on the surface. 
Rejoice that I suffer. Rejoice that I am afflicted. Those, that just doesn't make sense. And apart from the good news of Jesus Christ, it won't make any sense. He's not advocating some form of stoicism. He is not advocating uh, some form of just uh, suck it up camper and it's all going to be okay. He's not advocating some form of denial like uh, Christian scientists. You've heard the joke about the Christian scientist in hell, right? It's not hot, I'm not here. It's not hot, I'm not here. As if it's all in the mind, it's just, it's just simply, uh, the pain is, is our mind playing tricks on us. No, the pain is real. The suffering is real. And yet, Peter encourages them to rejoice in the midst of it. To rejoice as you share Christ's sufferings. Now that word share, it comes from that Greek word koinonia, fellowship, participation. In other words, directly connected to and intimate with in a sense. And so we rejoice because we have communion with the sufferings of Jesus. And when Peter says this, he's not completely out in left field because Paul says the same thing in Philippians 3, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share in His sufferings becoming like Jesus in His death. And so we are united with Jesus Christ And because we're united with Him and we suffer like He suffers, we now have a deeper sense of communion with God in the midst of our sufferings. And that's why we rejoice. Not the suffering itself, but what the suffering brings into our lives of that greater sense of communion with Him. Because He is one who identifies with suffering. When Jeanette was on her deathbed, though we didn't know it was her deathbed yet, and she was struggling to breathe, I reminded her that Jesus knows what it's like to struggle to breathe. For that is part of what He experienced upon the cross. Jesus has an experiential knowledge of suffering and comes to His people in their suffering to minister to them. That's why they were to rejoice. That's why they were to rejoice. Because they didn't suffer alone. And they didn't suffer without a purpose. But our suffering is connected to His suffering. His is redemptive for us. It removes our guilt and condemnation. But our suffering is restorative. It's to make us more like Jesus because He's already removed our guilt. And so as a Christian, don't think that you're suffering because you sinned, but you are suffering so that you won't sin. Very different. 
we also understand more of His love because He suffered for us. We understand the depths of His love because it was His love that drove Him to suffer on our behalf. And so we have a greater appreciation, understanding for the greatness of His love that He would willingly go through things like that that He didn't have to. But He chose to. We experience more of His compassion as He strengthens us by that union as we suffer. The strength to continue to stand up under the weight of affliction comes because not because we're tough, but because we're united to Jesus and He strengthens us through the power of the Holy Spirit. This is true particularly if we are, as they were, insulted for the name of God. So the fiery trials that they were experiencing were primarily connected to persecution. Okay? We see Peter, for instance. We read from that in Acts of how he and the others were beaten for the name of Christ. And they rejoiced that they were considered worthy of suffering for His name. We think of Paul and Silas in Acts 16 who are beaten, then thrown into prison in Philippi. And what are they doing? They're singing hymns in prison. They're not indulging in self-pity. And so when Peter writes this, he writes as someone who has walked that road already as opposed to someone who has repeatedly failed. The other day, yesterday, I was driving back from the gym, had the radio on, and John Lennon is singing Imagine. And I had one of those moments of enlightenment, you might call it. Living at, imagine all people living at peace. This is a man who couldn't live at peace with his first wife. A man who couldn't live at peace with the four men that he made millions of dollars with. No, oh, three men. I get it. There was an extra beetle. Pete Best, yeah, yeah, Pete Best. He couldn't be at peace with them. He, he, he talked about the, the rich. There's no one who's rich and there's no one who's poor, and yet he was a man who was rich and lived like he was rich. And so, I don't want to beat up on John Lennon, but I'm just saying that people often have ideals that they never attain. And that's not what Peter is talking about here, because he and other apostles have experienced this. It's possible. It's not like John Lennon's imagine. Okay? We see as well the example in Hebrews 10. For you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. And so the people that the that Hebrews were written to, was written to, had experienced persecution. Their stuff had been confiscated. Imagine for a moment if someone came and took your stuff. 
would be would rejoicing be the first thing that came to mind? I suggest it wouldn't be. <laughs> it's something that only the Holy Spirit can produce. But when tell, someone takes your stuff because of Jesus, it reframes everything. It's not just they took it because they wanted it. They took it because you love Jesus and they don't. Peter, uh, Paul reminds us, 2 Timothy chapter 3, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Jesus, Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's not an absolute statement. That's a general statement. But if you, in a, if you live in a faithless place like Paul lived, and we are increasingly living in, the more you seek to live a godly life, the more you should probably expect to have fiery trials connected to it. They were not sharing in the sufferings of Jesus if they suffered as a murderer, or a thief, or an evildoer. Another word for that would be criminal. And then there's this odd phrase, or odd term, as a meddler. I'm not sure how you get from criminal to meddler, but yet Peter brings this up. And so the problem isn't just with with suffering because you're a criminal, but you can also suffer for being what's called a busybody. Another day at the gym, another song. I was listening to Brian Stetzer, and it was a song about Big Nose Joe, the nosiest man I know. Some people are like that. They're always sticking their nose in everybody's business. They think they have to say something about everything. When you are part of the cultural majority, you basically get to say something about everything. When the the church in general is is the cultural majority and then we can we can see the uh, the use of transformational justice of making laws that are just but when the church is not a cultural majority like right now okay to talk about such things often ends up being button your nose in where it doesn't belong so there's a sense in which the church when it is a minority um doesn't always need to point out the foibles of society. It needs to point out its own foibles and bring the church in line with Christ. Peter presses his point. If anyone suffers as a Christian, one of the three times in the Bible that that word is used, Christian, we use it a lot. The Bible only uses it three times. Follower of Christ If anyone suffers as a follower of Christ, let him not be ashamed. Let him not be embarrassed. Let him not hang his head as though he is one of the deplorables. But rather, to recognize that he brings glory to God even as he or she suffers. One of the things I read this week was about the the revolution in Cuba. It was interesting because people were giving me a hard time for for Che Guevara on the tobacco thing I had. Um, But the early martyrs in the Cuban revolution were largely uh, 
Christians. And they would, when they're being brought out of the prison to be executed, usually by gun, they were shot, uh, they would start to cry out, Long live King Jesus! And they might throw in death to communism. But, uh, <laughs> long live King Jesus! They're seeing this within a religious context of the, the conflict between Christ and Satan. And they were saying, Jesus is my king. And so it got so bad that the guards began to gag them as before they brought them out to be executed because they were tired of hearing the praises of Jesus. These were martyrs who were not ashamed to die for Christ, but boldly proclaimed the truth on the way. So we rejoice if we share in His sufferings, bearing a shame, a, a shame like Jesus bore for us. Thirdly, shortly, rejoice to share in Christ's glory. We suffer that we may, as, as He says, rejoice and be glad. And so He starts to kind of pile up these these verbs to express the joy that's going on. Rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. He's not simply be glad. Not simply have a smile on your face. Not look on the bright side of life. But really rejoice. Shout and jump and laugh and cry and the happiest that you've ever been, that you ever will be, is what He's talking about. Now obviously there is the future revelation of His glory when Jesus is exalted and everybody is going to kneel as we see in places like Philippians chapter 2. That path that Jesus walked of first the cross, then the crown is the path that we walk. And so we who share in His sufferings will also one day share in His glories. And that's part of what Peter is getting at here. An idea that we see in places like Romans 8, for instance. You know, um, the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. And as a result, Peter, uh, Paul says, for I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed. The bad stuff that he was experiencing, and Paul experienced a lot of bad stuff. He says that's nothing compared to the glory that I'm going to experience. Such though that in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, he could talk about these things as being light and momentary troubles and the weight of glory. Eternal glory. So Paul also had this viewpoint. But Peter was not simply talking about the future glory we were going to experience, but also a present glory that they were to experience because they are blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Not will rest upon you, but now does rest upon you. Here's the blessing. 
insults and pain cannot remove this fact that the Spirit of God rests upon His people. The very same Spirit of God that descended upon Jesus at His baptism and rested upon Him and enabled Him to do everything that He did for us as Messiah. That Spirit. That Spirit that empowered Him in all that He did. That Spirit that held Him up in the midst of His sufferings. That same Spirit rests upon God's people when they suffer. Glory, I say. Because it's the Spirit of glory. If you want to understand more about the fact that Jesus did all He did as our mediator in the power of the Spirit, go to our library. Sinclair Ferguson, the Holy Spirit series. Watch it. That Spirit rests upon us. That Spirit which is spoken of in Isaiah 11, and the Spirit of God shall rest upon Him, referring to uh, the, the Son of David, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. That rested on Jesus, and now it rests upon us. This is greater than that that pillar of cloud and fire that we see in Exodus in the wilderness journeys. That protected them, led them, and guided them through the wilderness journeys. But it was external to them. And the Holy Spirit that rests upon us is one who also abides within us or dwells within us. And so He preserves us to everlasting life. That's part of why we rejoice. So fiery trials are going to arise. They're going to come to you on this side of eternity when you live in a particularly faithless place. Don't be shocked. Don't be surprised in light of both spiritual conflict as well as God's intention to make you fully devoted to Him, otherwise known as holy. When we suffer for Jesus, we also share in or have fellowship with Him in His sufferings, and we meet with Him there, or better, He meets with us there. We will also be sure we will share in His glory even now. And so there are reasons to rejoice when we suffer. And these truths are intended to sustain us in our suffering. Let's pray. Father, help us to understand, to, to grasp the, the great privilege it is to suffer for the suffering servant. Help us to grasp what a privilege it is to share in His glory. Help us to not be people who only want the glory part of it. But help us to um, know the depth of communion we experience when we suffer for Him. 
I pray for those who are suffering right now in our congregation. That they would know of that strengthening that comes through the Spirit. That they would know that peace of mind that comes when we realize this is not something strange. Help them to hold on, but more importantly, hold on to them. Help us not to run from suffering when you appoint it. But help us to trust you in the midst of it. To believe that you have our best interest in mind. Even if you don't have our best suggestions. Help us to remember that we are but children. And you are the father. And that while every father doesn't know best all the time, you do. Help us to trust instead of resist. Help us to rejoice instead of complain. This only happens because you work this in us by the Spirit that rests upon us. when we feel the other stuff coming out, help us to repent. To confess what's really in our hearts. To confess what we really want for what it really is. That sometimes we make you in a false image. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.